Welcome to our Clothed with the Sun daily podcast, our daily reading and meditation on the Gospel of the Day. I am James Thomas. Today is Friday, April 28th, 2023. It is the Friday of the third week of Easter. It's also the feast of St. Louis de Montfort and St. Peter Chanel. Today's gospel is a continuation of the gospel of John chapter six. The Jews quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. These things he said while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So we are getting to the end here of John chapter 6. After Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, after Jesus walked on the water, all these people are still coming after him and they're looking for signs. And now he's giving them this teaching, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're quarreling among themselves, and they're essentially accusing him of telling his disciples to practice cannibalism, which, you know, cannibalism, taken for what it is, I mean, that just makes, if that's true, if that's what Jesus is saying here, I'm going to make you all into cannibals, well, then that just discounts everything. It discounts Jesus' whole message, and it turns him into some sort of weirdo, weird preacher, fly-by-night. We know our Lord Jesus is not a fly-by-night, that he is the Son of God, that he's risen from the dead, and that his church has lasted for over 2,000 years. Yet, he gives this teaching that's very difficult, and many people leave him because of it. Yet, Jesus doesn't say to them, oh no, come on guys, come back, I was just speaking symbolically. Instead, He uses an expression that Jesus uses at other points in the gospel, meaning what I'm about to say, I mean, literally, I'm going to say it even stronger now. Amen. Amen. I say to you, this is what Jesus says when he really tries to drive something home. And he says, amen, amen. I say to you when they're doubting what he's saying, and he could have just said, well, it's a symbol. It's, you know, it's a metaphor. No, Jesus goes to the extreme and says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. That this is the source of eternal life. And he goes on to say that in a few different ways. He says it very clearly in a way that sounds very radical, very extreme. He means what he says. And if we studied it in the Greek, we'll see that he even changes his words to become more emphatic and more clear. You must chew on, gnaw on my flesh. You must take my flesh and consume it with your mouth. He's making it very, very clear 
And this is the culmination of everything else. It's the culmination of overcoming what Adam and Eve did in the garden, eating of the wrong tree. Uh, whereas this is about eating of the tree of life, the cross. There was a tree of life in the garden, but this is the new tree of life that Jesus now gives us to eat of. And in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life, and it was said that if they had eaten of it, they would have lived forever. And after the fall, it would have meant living forever in a fallen state. So this is the fruit of the tree of life where Jesus has given his life for it. Jesus has shed his blood So this is the culmination, too, of the Old Testament sacrifices and communion, such as in the Passover, where they ate the lamb, but they also offered the lamb to the Father. That's what we do in the Mass with the Eucharist. We receive it and we offer it, creating communion between us and the Father. The Lamb, Jesus, is the basis for that communion. He makes the communion happen. He is the priest and the victim. So it's so powerful, and there's so much going on here all at once. And I just wanted to tie into, as I said I was going to do yesterday, I talked about how to pray the Mass and how to receive communion. As Jesus is making it very clear what it is that he's giving us, and that this is the source of eternal life, I felt like it would be very apropos today to just give some basic church teachings uh, using the Catechism, paraphrasing the Catechism, of what the Eucharist is and what the Mass is. We've talked a little bit about what the Mass is, but I just want to, uh, first of all, just emphasize the meaning of the Mass in a very general way. The Mass is the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. Now, we are criticized by people of other denominations saying, oh, you just want to crucify Jesus over and over again. No, that's not what we're saying. We're not making it happen over and over again. We're tapping into the one sacrifice of Jesus that took place on the cross 2,000 years ago. It happened once. It's not going to happen again. It doesn't need to happen again. But Jesus at the Last Supper gave us this prayer to make present what he was about to do. His words reveal this, especially if you're reading the words in Hebrew and in the Greek that they were initially translated into. We are making present Good Friday. So the Mass makes present the sacrifice. The sacrifice is offered by Jesus to the Father. Jesus offers himself, but through the ministry of the priest and his sacrament of holy orders, the sacrifice is made present for all of us right there in our midst. It's a way to connect us to Jesus' cross over and over again until the end of time in every part of the world. Everywhere you go, we're tapping into that cross. Jesus gives us the Mass. He gives us the Eucharist to connect with his sacrifice so that we can benefit from it and receive from it and continue to uh, be impacted by Jesus' work of salvation and to receive sanctifying grace. I'm going to get back to that in a minute, the effects of communion and grace. Uh, But another thing, the secondary meaning of the Mass, the secondary reality of what the Mass is, is, and this is emphasized by Vatican II, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Church's document on the liturgy. Um, It's also highly emphasized by a great book by Scott Hahn, The Lamb's Supper, in which he sets out to talk about Revelation, but he really 
and the book of Revelation, but he talks so much about the Mass, because the book of Revelation really is all about the Mass. Jesus is saying to St. John, okay, you're celebrating Mass there on earth. He's, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, but let me show you how we do it up in heaven. And Scott Hahn gets all fired up if you listen to um, recordings where he's talking about you know his book and, and just what he's teaching in that book, connecting the Eucharist to heaven, to uh, the book of Revelation, and he, Scott Hahn says in funny ways, he says a lot of funny things. He says, you want good liturgy? Except he's using his Hulk Hogan voice. You're just going to have to wait till you get to heaven next Sunday. And he says it, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not giving it its full due here, the way I'm imitating him. I'm just a little tired here as I'm making this recording. Uh, but Getting back to it, the secondary meaning of the Mass, the first is that it's the sacrifice. The second, very much connected to that, is that it is our participation in the heavenly liturgy. And what is the heavenly liturgy? Well, we see it in the book of Revelation. There's an altar in heaven, and on the altar is the Lamb who has been slain yet lives forever. And the elders of the human race, as well as all the angels, are worshiping the lamb who has been slain yet lives forever. You know what that means? Something incredible about that among so many other incredible things. They're worshiping a human being. I mean, of course, Jesus is not a human being. This is now theological minutiae here. Jesus is God, but Jesus completely took on our humanity. He became the God man for us. And they're worshiping Jesus. They're not worshiping the Son pre-incarnation, although, you know, that person, the second person of the Trinity, lives forever. But remember, the Son has forever become changed in that he took on our human flesh for our salvation. So the angels are worshiping the second person of the Trinity, who, by the way, has a body. The Father and the Spirit do not have bodies. The Father and the Spirit are not fully God and fully man. They're just fully God. They're just spirit. Jesus is body and soul, body, blood, soul, and divinity. He is God and man. And they are worshiping him. And there's a pattern of revelation. They worship and then they conquer the devil and then they worship and then they conquer the devil. And so it's all, it's once again, the cross is at the center of this. This wouldn't be happening without the cross. The fact that the lamb is slain and lives forever, that's all about the crucifixion and the resurrection. But they're worshiping. There is a beauty in heaven that is all about worship. If you're bored at Sunday mass because you don't know what's going on and you'd rather be doing other things, well, then you're not going to go to heaven because heaven is us forever in the divine liturgy, worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, worshiping the Lamb that's been slain yet lives forever, singing songs, being together, being overjoyed because we're in the presence of God. And just as he's poured himself out for us, we will forever have the opportunity to pour ourselves out to him in love forever and ever and ever. There will be worship to the nth degree, forever and ever, and this will be our joy to worship our Creator and to worship our Redeemer. So the Mass 
makes the heaven liturgy liturgy present. And it's not separated from what I said before about the mass being the, our, our participation in Calvary and the crucifixion, because that is the divine liturgy. That's, that's what draws us into that divine liturgy. It makes the divine liturgy what it is now. I mean, I'm sure the angels were worshiping father, son, and spirit before. And, and once again, it's hard to use the time with, because there is no time in heaven. Um, once again, even with that, there's the theological minutiae we could get into about, you know, the fact that we are still temporal beings, even though we are, we're in time now, but we'll be in eternity. Anyway, there's a lot there that none of us are going to fully understand in this life, but I love to mention these things and I love to talk about these things. It's little bits and pieces that we should be very much looking forward to as we are, we were made for heaven. So yes, the mass is a participation in the heavenly liturgy. Once again, it makes distractions during mass completely ridiculous. The fact that people want to talk before and after mass, the fact that people want to make it all about themselves, the fact that people think the best thing of the mass is the priest told a really good joke today. First of all, it being about the, the, the most horrifyingly bad thing that ever happened in the world, and that was when we killed God. And secondly, that it's our participation in heaven happening right here on earth, right before our eyes, and we can be part of it. From the moment the priest comes down the aisle at the beginning to the very end when he gives the final blessing and he processes out, we are connected to the heavenly liturgy. We are sharing in the heavenly liturgy. And those are really the two primary meanings of the Mass. Now, I mean, a lot of other things are said. It's a celebration. People often use that word and they have no idea what they're talking about. It's not a celebration the way we celebrate things here on earth, but it is a celebration. Yes, we are liturgizing. (laughs) We are praying and singing uh, to worship the God who died on the cross, to worship the God who reigns in heaven. That is a celebration. But it's not a celebration that we demean by, you know, distracting ourselves from God and from prayer in order to do things that have no place in the liturgy, like whatever, clowns or dancing or whatever. I don't know, it's different things that different people do. But it's meant to be, the, the point of all that is that it's meant to be all about Jesus. It's meant to be all about God. It's meant to be worship. And it's meant to be our connection to God so that we are receiving endless amounts of grace as well. Anyway, so those are the two primary meanings of the Mass. Once again, there's, there's all sorts of other things we could say. Uh, but that's the most important thing. And those two things are connected. As far as effects of receiving Jesus and Holy Communion. Now, we only receive these fruits to the degree that we are open to them. So if we're going up to communion without paying any attention whatsoever, without having any love in our hearts for Jesus, then we're getting nothing. But if our hearts are open to him, if we're praying, if we've prepared in prayer, and now we're being lovingly attentive and asking Jesus, come into my heart, and asking the Blessed Mother, please pray for me that I receive Jesus worthily, just as you did, well then, the catechism, I'm just going to list some things. The, whole, the catechism says, Holy Communion augments our union with Christ. It connects us to Jesus. It makes us uh, more filled with him. And I want to mention something just about that in terms of sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is the life of the Holy Spirit within us. 
we are either filled with sin or we are filled with grace. Now, it's true, we can have some venial sins on our soul and still be in the state of grace. But when we are born before baptism, we are in original sin. And so our souls are filthy and our souls are empty. They, they are filled with sin. But baptism cleans our souls and baptism fills us with the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. sanctifying grace meaning we have God filling our souls, meaning we're able to go to heaven. But even here on earth, we are in a state of connectedness with Almighty God, and God can do so much through us because of that connection. So what happens? As we get older and we learn how to sin, we start sinning. If we commit mortal sin, we lose sanctifying grace. Our souls are filthy again. Our souls are empty of grace. The devil can find his place in our soul when we allow ourselves to sin and not repent. But when we repent, and specifically for Catholics, we go to confession. When we go to confession, sanctifying grace is restored to the soul. Sin is purged from the soul. And once again, we are all lit up with sanctifying grace. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, which means there's potential for all the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. One basic gift slash fruit of the Holy Spirit, you know, a fruit of the spiritual life, is very simply that God hears our prayers and our prayers are being answered. We don't really have the same effectiveness in prayer, if any effectiveness at all, if we are approaching God, but in a state of mortal sin. So confession is regularly needed. Of course, if we're unconscious and uh, usually at the end of life, you know, we say anointing of the sick can also have that effect of taking away sin, even mortal sin. Um, that is, you know, if we weren't able to confess our sins. Um, but that's how sanctifying grace works. You know, we're, it's empty, it's filled, it's empty, it's filled. So we need to go to confession as often as possible. So what does Holy Communion do? Holy Communion increases our capacity for sanctifying grace. It increases grace within us. It augments our union with Christ, thereby making us more holy. So an image for this, it's a crude image. It's not a complete image, but it's it's, it's an okay image, I guess, that a lot of people use. Imagine if your soul is like a glass. You're born with an empty, dirty glass. Baptism cleans it and fills it. Mortal sin empties it and dirties it. Confession cleans it and fills it. You know what Holy Communion does? It makes the glass bigger and, and full and clean. It increases it. Good deeds also do this. So we say like, you know, when we get into heaven, I mean, we'll be so lucky to just be that little tiny shot glass that's, that's got a little bit of grace in it, you know, it just gets over the line and we're in heaven for all eternity. That's the ideal. And that's what a lot of people aim for. They don't live for God, but then they want the sacraments when they're about to die and praise God, they're able to get them because we can't guarantee that heaven forbid somebody dies suddenly and they weren't in the state of grace. They weren't in union with Jesus. So, yeah, there might be a somebody that just gets over the line and they've got that little thimble full of grace, that little shot glass. Well, then you take somebody like Mother Teresa or Pope John Paul that prayed, that served others, that loved Jesus in the Eucharist and spent lots of time in adoration. Well, we say there's degrees of happiness in heaven. And yeah, 
I mean, a person like that, they don't have that shot glass. They don't have the regular size glass. They have like a Mack truck filled with grace. They have a uh, swimming pool filled with grace. That's, that's what their souls look like. It's like that image of the Grinch, you know, when he has his conversion on Christmas, very similar to Mr. Scrooge, uh, his heart grow. I forget the exact words. It's funny though, but it's his heart grows, his heart outdoes the scale that was measuring it. So this is what happens when we receive communion. The catechism says it also separates us from sin. It makes us stronger to not sin. It wipes away venial sins if we receive him devoutly. It strengthens us too for good works. It helps us stay away from mortal sin so we're stronger in our souls. It makes the church, it makes us the body of Christ that St. Paul talks about. Each of us has a different role in the body of Christ. If we think about it as a body, some of us are the hands, some of us are the feet, some of us are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth. We all have different parts to play in the body of Christ, and the Eucharist makes us the body of Christ. We are what we eat. And so, therefore, in doing that, it unites us to each other. People think they're going to have greater union in Mass if they're holding hands. I beg to differ. If you're holding somebody's hand, especially if she's cute, you're thinking about that person. Whereas if you receive communion with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, then that is the best way to unite with your brothers and sisters. It creates a supernatural bond. And then maybe you have a social event after mass. After everybody's done praying, go to the hall, have lunch, have a nice whatever party in connection with mass. And that you experience that union because the union happened in Holy Communion because you were focused on Jesus. Jesus is the source of our unity. We try to connect without Jesus. We're not going to be united. It's like trying to glue something without the glue. Jesus is the source of our bond, specifically in the Eucharist. The Eucharist commits us to the poor. So there's a quote in the Catechism from John Chrysostom. You've tasted the blood of the Lord, yet you do not recognize your brother. You dishonor this table when you do not judge worthy of sharing your food, someone judge worthy to take part in this meal. God freed you from all your sins and invited you here, but you have not become more merciful. So the Eucharist makes us connected better to the poor. It's all about also the unity of Christians. So... Just as it makes us the body of Christ, it it creates almost like a magnetic effect. It enhances the ability for people to bond with each other in general and for our separated brothers and sisters to come back and to want what we have, that union through the body of Christ. So the Eucharist and true prayer in the Holy Spirit will unite. You know, we pray for the reunification of all Christians in, in one church. And the Eucharist is very much a part of that. And there's so many other things. I stated some of the basics. But this is what we're all about here. This is why we place such a heavy emphasis on the Eucharist. It is Jesus. The Eucharist makes the church. The Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith. The Mass is this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his sacrifice. And we are saved on so many levels. We are saved, period. Our souls, bodies, everything. We are healed. All these things are given to us 
in so many ways, but par excellence through the Mass and through Holy Communion. So let us become men and women that better pray the Mass and better prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. We have one more passage in this gospel that we will read tomorrow for Saturday. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, we'll finish just talking a little bit more about the Eucharist and a little bit more about Eucharistic miracles. And um, I failed to mention, well, I did mention today's the feast of St. Louis de Montfort. I did mention before as well, St. Louis de Montfort talks about the best way to pray the Mass and receive communion is together with Mary. It's one of the most profound things he says. But yes, I will have to take another day just to talk about St. Louis de Montfort because he is a disciple of Mary, an apostle of Our Lady, who Pope John Paul was so inspired by that he literally became a priest and ultimately became Pope uh, based on his foundation that came very much from St. Louis de Montfort and devotion to Mary and consecration to Mary, which we certainly recommend for all believers. I'll end it there. God bless you. I hope everybody has a great day.